Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 23. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But... If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. Flip with me, if you got your Bible out there still, don't put it away too quickly. Flip back with me to the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. I want to remind us of what we're doing here because it has uh, bearing with the, the text this morning. We started out in Luke chapter 1, been working 49 sermons now, we've almost made it to 50. This is the 49th this morning, but we started out here in Luke chapter 1 where Luke just really gives his purpose statement. The, the writer of Luke, uh, the, the Luke and wrote also Luke, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, and he writes both of them to this man named Theophilus, but he gives his introduction right here at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. He's speaking there of those who saw Jesus do these works, ministered with Jesus. They've passed down these things. Verse 3, it seemed good to me, Luke, who traveled with Paul, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke writes these things down. He gives an orderly account of the eyewitnesses and all that they saw accomplished so that Theophilus could have certainty concerning the things that he had been taught. And we also, by default, reading the same book that Theophilus um, read, have the same emphasis coming towards us. The, the account is written down so that the life of Jesus would be made clear to us so that we could have certainty concerning the things about the reality of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And the reason why I point us back to there, going back with me now to chapter 11, where we are this morning, 
The reason why I point that out to us is, well, it's always a good idea when you're reading anything, uh, if it's from a blog post, uh, an article in a newspaper, or anything, to kind of keep in mind the, the general idea of what the, the person, the point they're trying to make, put all, pulling it all together with one bigger theme. It's always a good idea. But specifically this morning, Luke brings up this passage, Jesus is dealing with the same issue, certainty concerning who Jesus is. Luke is not original in his desire that Theophilus would have certainty concerning the things that he had been taught. Luke desires Theophilus to have certainty because Jesus himself, as he went around and taught, desired that his hearers would have certainty concerning who he was and the things that he had taught. He put them on display. Jesus himself desires that we see him, hear from him, and get off the fence, as it were, when it comes to our thoughts about him. Jesus is not about fence riding when it comes to his identity. He is calling for certainty, and he's calling for certainty here in our passage this morning. Back in Luke 11, though, it's, this is a very interesting miracle that is recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke because this miracle has one verse to it. It's, very, it's just straightforward. We don't get any background. We don't know anything about this guy other than he can't speak. He's mute. And evidently a demon, in this case, is making this man mute. So we, we hear that Jesus is casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon goes out of the man, the guy speaks and people marvel. End of the miracle. I mean, no like additional follow. Like when the demoniac gets his, you know, we know all about the demoniac, and he would he would break chains off of him. He lived among the tombs. He was a crazy person. He cut himself. He was just he was a mess. And then Jesus shows up. They have a conversation. Jesus casts out the demons, throws them into the pigs. The man wants to go with Jesus. He says, "No, go back to you." We know this whole story about the demoniac, but this is just like, hey. Guy had a demon that was making a mute. Uh, Jesus cast out the demon. Everybody marveled. He spoke. Everyone marveled. That's it. Well, it's interesting because Luke is, in his narrative, changing the focus on the life and ministry of Jesus. I mentioned this back when we were uh, commenting on the miracle of Mary and Martha, Martha and Mary, and there, the, Luke's desire here to, um, to start emphasizing the words of Jesus. His message to Martha was that she had chosen the better thing, which was to sit at the feet of Jesus and hear what he had to say. And now Luke is taking us through not necessarily the actions, which we've seen a lot of actions up to this point in the Gospel of Luke, but now we're getting into the words of Jesus. But the miracle, before we get further with that, I want to say many commentators really makes something of this miracle. It's interesting to think about the allegorical meaning of this. We, we've just come out of two weeks talking about the importance of praying, of speaking to God. Martha and Mary, remember, was them hearing from God. And then we go into, not only is it important to hear from God, it's important to speak to God. And then what's the miracle that Luke brings up? A man who can't speak. And Jesus enables him to to speak. Now, we don't have, I mean, most of us in here can talk and can use our voices, but so the, the allegory comes along and the pre many commentators make much of this 
that, that maybe Luke is trying to bring up this observation that though many of us have the ability to speak to one another, language and speaking towards God is silent. How silent we often are with praying and that Jesus shows up and he loosens our tongues, not necessarily to speak to one another, but he loosens our tongues that we would speak to God. You do not speak to a God you don't believe is there. If you don't believe God is there, you certainly don't spend time talking to him. But Jesus shows up. He reveals God to us. He shows us who God is and therefore does performs a miracle of sorts in which our tongues are then loosened to speak to this God that is. Jesus shows up and he loosens our tongues toward God by revealing who God is. So that's interesting, but I honestly, that seems like you're making, we're making much out of one verse. And so I don't want to put our time and the emphasis there. It seems more like what Jesus is driving home and what Luke gathers this for is this teaching. This teaching from the dialogue that follows this miracle. It reveals something. And what does this dialogue reveal? Big idea is that it reveals, this dialogue reveals, unjustified uncertainty from people on the identity of Jesus. This dialogue reveals unjustified uncertainty. There's, they have this uncertainty, but they really don't have any good reason for it. They come up with excuses. They come up with reasons for why they have uncertainty concerning Jesus, but it is unjustified uncertainty. Luke has written, remember, to Theophilus, that he might have certainty concerning the things that he has been taught. And here we see people confronted with the reality of Jesus. And what do they do? They persist in their uncertainty. They persist in their uncertainty. And they do it by a couple of ways. The first way they persist in in their uncertainty, we see is they attribute to, they call what is good, evil. They say Jesus has done this by Beelzebul. This great fun name to say, Beelzebul. Or also you could say Beelzebub is another one. It's translated Lord of the Flies. Is what it's taken for. You got some Old Testament passages that talk about this. Beelzebul, Lord of the Flies, Beelzebub, which would kind of is a very derogatory term. It's saying Lord of the Dung Heap or Lord of the Flies, meaning Lord of the Flies that fly around the Dung Heap. Okay, so that there, this is not a compliment. Like he does this by Beelzebul. This is this really impressive God. No. That's not what he's saying. They're, they're saying you do this by the work of Satan, by darkness, by this, this, um, this evil God. It's a derogatory name. And so they take what, that which is good, these works of Jesus, and the way they justify their uncertainty, they say and he does it because he's evil. They call what is good evil. One commentator says it like this, Jesus' work is different from Satan's labors. Whereas the devil destroys, the deliverer rescues. Whereas Satan debilitates life, Jesus enhances it. Whereas Satan cripples, Jesus liberates. Jesus shows how his work exalts life. There's no reason for this uncertainty. They just don't want to believe it. So what do they do? They vilify it. They say it's evil. They vilify that which they don't like. And can I be honest? 
This is still a popular tactic in our world today. If you don't like something that you see, if you hear of a righteousness or you hear of good that is out there and you don't want to support the person, what you do is you vilify them. If you see someone out doing good, you find a way to make them somehow the enemy so that you don't have to justify that they're doing anything good. But it's very popular in our world today to call what is good evil. From books like, uh, um, like Christopher Hitchens, God is Not Great. And Christopher Hitchens was a, a, a public speaker, a very intelligent atheist that would talk about the reality. He, he attributed all the evils of the world to religion. And that because, that because people had this concern for goodness, he would call the goodness that the church has performed throughout millennia, and we could talk about all the ways that the church of Christ has done much good, he would attribute that, he would call that evil because of the fallout that he would see from some claim in the name of Christ. But we have grandiose ideas like that that just flat out say, God is evil, religion is evil, to the destruction of our, of our biblical worldview of gender and identity, which is going on in our culture right now today. This idea of how God has made us, male and female, complementary genders, complementary sexes, and this good thing God has made, that now has become the higher ground, the moral ground, is to say that which is good and right and found in creation is actually evil. That what I just said to you this morning, what I just said right here, that God has made us male and female in his image, is hate speech in our culture today. This what God has made good, the way that we get around from, well, I don't really like what it is. I don't like a biblical view of human sexuality and flourishing from within a covenant of marriage. I don't like that. And so what a person does is what they have done to Jesus. They take what is good and they say, you know what, that's actually evil. That's actually evil. And that's how you get around one way to just deny and to, be, to remain in your uncertainty is to call that which is good, to call it evil. You know, it's easy to see it. If, if you talk to anyone who is uh, passionately cited in politics, if you talk to a committed Republican, they don't think Democrats have just bad ideas. They hate Democrats. And maybe, it's, maybe I'm talking to you in this morning, I don't know. But if you're a committed Democrat, if you're like, you've got this idea, this is your worldview, you don't just think Republicans have some bad ideas, you want Republicans to die. I mean, that, that is, and there's this polarization that goes on. We don't have any ability, we don't have any ability, the way that you justify your uncertainty, or you have to vilify that which, you have to vilify everybody to make yourself justify to justify yourself and so that's what they're doing with jesus they're vilifying him they're taking his good and they're saying it's actually evil to justify their uncertainty about who he is and jesus won't have it he doesn't allow them to stay in this uncertainty about who he is he calls them on the carpet talking about their own children their own sons performing exorcisms are they of the devil as well is basically his argument to them and no they are not but this is one way that unjustified uncertainty exists in our culture today we take jesus and we make him evil we take church and we say it's the thing that is wrong people talk about oh i, I like jesus but boy i've been hurt by the church or i've and people have been hurt by the church but <laughs> we that is there is a there's permission being given there this idea of 
if I vilify that which God has ordained, if I say it's the wrong, if I say it's evil, I'm now justified in my uncertainty. So this is the first way they have unjustified uncertainty concerning Jesus. They vilify him. The second is actually, it sounds nicer, but it's just as bad. It's just as uncertain. It's just as wicked. These people, they go on to say, verse 16, while others detest him, keep seeking a sign from heaven. They say, you know what? I think I'll, if, if Jesus would do just one more impressive thing, then I'd believe. And then what happens? Jesus does some other impressive sign. You know, if Jesus would just do one more impressive thing, if, if Jesus would just do this, then I'd believe. And then what would happen, we would see this, Jesus would show up and do some amazing thing, and they'd say, well, you know what? If he would just do that and this, then I'd believe. And they persist in this uncertainty. They persist in this uncertainty. They are deluded with this idea that if, if Jesus would meet some arbitrary standard that I've set up, then I'd believe. No, they don't. No, they won't. And no, neither will anyone else. That you build up these standards to justify your uncertainty towards Jesus, you're not going to be convinced. You are, it is a determined uncertainty that they have. They are, they, they're deceiving themselves and considering them. You know what? They'll say things like this. Maybe you hear this. I'm open-minded. I'll, I'll listen. I'm interested. Go ahead and tell me. And they, they, have, they put on a cloud. You know what? I, I'm interested. If he would just do one more sign, I'm in. You know? And then, but they're deceived. They aren't open-minded. This group is hard set in their uncertainty. They are committed to their uncertainty. They are committed to riding the fence. Jesus in the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, you remember that story where the rich man sits at Lazarus, or the rich, Lazarus sits at the rich man's gate. They both die. Uh, Lazarus goes to be with Abraham and the rich man goes to, to hell, to Hades, and he's saying, Oh, send me over a drink of water to cool my tongue. And the rich Abraham, Abraham says, no, we can't get from where we are over to you. And so then the rich man says to Abraham, hey, send Lazarus back to tell my family that hell is real and avoid it, basically, to trust in the prophets and the law and all of these things. And Abraham says, they have the law and the prophets. If a person rises from the dead, they won't even believe him. They, they, they are determined in their uncertainty. And it's the same idea coming here. People are determined in their uncertainty. But I want you to notice for a second an objection that isn't raised. That they vilify Jesus. They, um, they, they, they demand more. They pretend like they're just fence riders. They're open and considering but just not committed. But what objection do they not raise? They never once raise this objection that Jesus actually was doing these miraculous works. None of his opposition ever says, you didn't really do that. You didn't really heal that person. You didn't really raise that person from the dead. You didn't make that person blind from birth. See, you didn't, you didn't walk on, you didn't calm the storms. You didn't, no one raises these objections that he didn't do them. It was widely known Jesus is performing these miracles. You can go to other Jewish his, history books of Jesus being this miracle worker. That would have been an easy way out to just say, I don't believe he really did those things. The objectors don't go there. They vilify, they ride the fence, but no one can deny Jesus is doing these things. 
That argument doesn't stand a chance. Everyone has seen Jesus do these works and, making, and performing these incredible miracles. Commentator says it this way, The decision Jesus calls for in this text is another feature that is true for every generation. His life and ministry were so unusual that one must assess its roots. The distance between the present and the past has allowed some to claim that Jesus did not really perform these wonders or give this type of evidence of his unique relationship to God. They attempt to relegate Jesus to the level of other greats of religion. But the opponents living in Jesus' time did not have the luxury of such a claim. They could not deny he had performed deeds of unusual power. The Jewish records we possess that allude to Jesus report the unusual nature of his deeds and try to explain them, but they can't deny them. They don't deny them. The corridors of time may dim the reality of his majestic works to an extent that some do deny he did them, but that is not a rational option. That is not a rational option. If it were, his opponents would have taken that road long ago. Those present with them would have denied it then. You didn't really do this. No one takes that road. No one in history with the books written at this time outside of Scripture takes that road. They all grant Jesus did these works. Sorry, back to the quote. Those who opposed Jesus took the only logical option left to them in light of the evidence of his supernatural power. They claimed it was rooted in diabolical force. The opponents in Jesus' day didn't have much choice. They couldn't dispute that this man was doing miracles. He was performing these incredible things. They had to come up with a different angle. Make him diabolical. Say he's doing it by Beelzebul. Say, um, you know, if he would just do a few things more. I'm I'm interested, but, you know, I'm going to need a little more proof. You know, I'm just not quite, I'm not quite all the way there yet. They didn't, those are the angles they had to play, but they couldn't dispute Jesus was performing these miracles. This point in our text this morning, Jesus presses on them the reality that they must concede that he does his miracles by the power, by the finger of God. And if he does them by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon them. The kingdom of God has come upon them and that the king of the kingdom is right here. This is who Jesus is. Make no mistake, Jesus is pushing for a fork in the road in the lives of those gathered there at this event. And he does the same for us this morning. He's forcing a fork in the road for all, a crisis of belief. What do you do with this man who performed these miracles undisputed? What do you do with him? Ah, he's a demon-possessed wacko. Uh, you know, maybe if, you, if he did a little more, if he did this thing in my life, maybe I'd believe. Both of those things are unjustified uncertainties. He did not do them by the works of the devil. And there, he, he has done plenty to prove his divinity. Specifically, we could go further, raising himself from the dead. He's making the point that he has performed these miracles by the hand of God and that he is the stronger man. He is the one who has come in and who has thrown out the strong man. And he pushes on this so hard that he makes the statement that if they are not for him, if if you are not for him, you have not joined him, you are actually against him. 
He just makes this incredible fork in the road saying, here I am. Here, here are my works. Here's what I have done. Do not remain in uncertainty. And the, and the idea is that to remain in this idea of, oh, you know, I'm open, considering, but just not there yet. To do that is to not be for Him. And to not be for Him is to be against Him. Is to be against Him. It says, that whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus leaves no middle ground. There is no middle way with Him. There is no test drive with Jesus. There is no take it home and try it out for 30 days, money back guaranteed, come on back. If you don't like Him, then we'll get you a new model. There is none of that with Jesus. There is none of that with Jesus. He is the King. (laughs) He is the King of this kingdom. He is saying that you don't get to ride the fence. And when the King shows up, sitting on the fence is the same as hopping off of it and walking the other way. There's one response. If you're on the fence, there's one response when the king shows up. And it's getting down and kneeling before the king. Riding the fence, walking away, that's on this side of the divide. The other side, the only response that is righteous, that is good, that is right, is one of faith kneeling down at the king when he shows up. Asking questions, searching for the truth, seeking to understand They're all great, noble pursuits. We make much in our culture today of being questioners, seekers, trying to understand, trying to learn. I love asking questions. Come to a Bible study, we go down rabbit trails for an hour. I mean, we just ask questions. I love questions. But the whole point of a question is to come to an answer. Isn't it? Don't you ask questions to come to an answer? You ask questions to eventually come to an answer. You search for truth. You search for truth, not because the search is an end in and of itself. You search for the truth so that you can rejoice when you find it. (laughs) That's why you search, so that you can rejoice when you find it. You seek to understand with the goal of finally remarking that you now see something you hadn't seen before. I'm seeking to understand. I want to understand, not so that I can just continue to perpetuate this cycle of seeking to understand, never getting anywhere. You search so that you can find. And our modern philosophy seems to prize searching above arriving. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus doesn't. He does not prize this idea of just searching, 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 staying on the fence. He does not prize it. You search so that you can arrive. You seek so that you can find. You ask so that you can receive. You knock so that the door is open. That was just a few weeks ago, right? They have a purpose. Another commentator, just read some more to you here. Whatever they may think of Christianity and the church, most people do not think they are hostile to Jesus Christ. They think they are spiritually open. And thus, they are willing to consider what Jesus has to offer. But before they make a commitment they think they need a sign that Jesus really is the Savior and that God, that, and God that He claims to be. This kind of skepticism may seem less evil than outright antagonism, but it is no less dangerous. Whether we deny Jesus altogether or simply dismiss Him until we get more evidence, we do not trust Him by faith. In fact, the skeptic may not actually be any closer to God than the antagonist. 
Many people who say that they are skeptics have no sincere desire to know God at all. They are only using their skepticism as an excuse for avoiding the hard realities of sin, death, and judgment. As J.C. Ryle once said, it is always one mark of a thoroughly unbelieving heart to pretend to want more evidence of the truth of religion. The truth is that God has given more than enough evidence. What holds people back is the pride of their own skepticism. So, where does that leave us this morning? How does this challenge us? How does this provoke us? How does this encourage us this morning? Where does your certainty lie? Who do you say Christ is? By what power do you say He worked His miracles? What does Luke desire for you? Certainty concerning Jesus. Who He is and what He has done. For those who tend to ride the fence, look at the work of Christ as every work of history records it for us. You must do something with this man who did the works that he did. Hate him, deny him if you want, but do not pretend that hiding behind ambivalence gets you off of the hook. It does not. This man is on display for you. Question all you like, and then come to an answer. Who is this man? For those in this morning who are trusting Christ, ground yourself again and again to this certainty. Jesus did his works by the finger of God because he is God. This is not some fairy tale we gather around to celebrate. This is the very fiber of reality that Jesus was born of a woman. He, at just the right time, God sent His Son in the fullness of time. He was born. He really lived. He performs these miracles. History records it. Not our fairy tale. Not Aesop's fables. This man lived. This man performed miracles that even those who hated him couldn't deny that he did. We must do something with Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you have placed faith in Christ, remember, your faith is not in some superstitious thing. It is in the God-man who came to earth, evidenced himself as the Son of God, performing mighty miracles and then showing his strength, winning us the stronger one, wins by becoming incredibly weak, giving himself on a cross, dying the death that sinners deserve, so that those who will look to this real man, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, those who will look to this son, forgiven of their sin, redeemed, rescued, made righteous in the eyes of God, is not pie in the sky. It is Christ has done this. Christ has promised this. We come to communion celebrating the reality of who Jesus is and what He has done. The reality. He lays down His life for His sheep. He gives up His life on a cross, dying the death sinners deserve. And by the power of God, He overcomes death itself and is resurrected and seen by many witnesses. Know this, Christian, in here this morning. He has the strength to overthrow death. And He most certainly will take care of you. If you tend to be a fence rider in here this morning, please come down off the fence and kneel at the feet of this one 
who has revealed himself to be the Son of God, the crucified and risen ultimate strong man. There is no benefit in stubbornly pursuing apathy and skepticism. Christ is revealing himself to you even right now. Trust in him. And Christian, may you, may we all, along with Theophilus, have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. Christ has risen. Christ has promised to come again. He will not abandon those who are His, and, and they will not be disappointed on the final day, as Romans 10.11 says, when everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. I write these things to you, Theophilus. Luke writes these things to us this morning, that we might have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. This is who Jesus is. This is what He has done to rescue sinners. May we see it, trust it, and rejoice in it. Let's pray. Father, do the work only you can do. Areas of our heart that are still on the fence, reservations. God, I pray that we would have the courage to lay them out before you and to climb down off the fence and kneel at the feet of Jesus. Father, I pray for a strengthening for all who have placed their faith in Christ. This is not just some old-time religion that our parents had, or this is not just some fairy tale passed down. This is real space and time history. That Christ, your Son, entered into the world, lived the righteous life we should have lived, died the death that we deserved, so that through faith in His work, confessing our sins, repenting, we could be forgiven. God, may that reality strengthen us, break into our hearts, embolden us, enliven us, give us joy to face the days ahead. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.